gentlemen, bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing the best little whorehouse in Texas. Texas has a whorehouse in it! Lord have mercy on our souls! Texas has a whorehouse in it! I'll expose the facts, although it fills me with disgust. Please excuse the filthy dark details and carnal lust. Filthy dark details and carnal lust. Dancing going on inside it. Don't you see they've gone plumb wild? I inquired, no one denied it. Now I think I'm getting riled. Bodies close together, arms and legs all rearranged. And the sheriff does not close it down. That's very strange. Stuff, brilliant teen, honky tonk cowboys. Oh, no. Mix it with green eye, thin lip, hardest nail, peroxide bronze. Oh, no. Not to mention some types that you'd never guess would venture near. Acting all depraved and loose and wild. Ninety miles from here, here they are, our own Melvin P. Thorpe singers. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. You know, I listened to last week's episode, and I thought to myself, wow, I sound so sad and so listless and so generally tired, (laughs) synonymous with listless, and that's because I was genuinely quite tired and sad. As a reminder, we had to record that episode twice, in full. I recorded it from top to bottom, stem to stern, and I lost all of the audio. I I had this hubris that you think that you would think that hubris would have been tested a long time ago. I tend to, well, this is the old me. The old me would try to record the entire episode in one take without stopping and saving my progress. And that finally came to bite me in the ass over 70 episodes into our run. And now I have learned my lesson. And so we are going to, I guess I was just always reliant on Patty and Benny's expertise as engineers, as producers. They always, they always had backups. They always knew what they were doing. And I have done my best to recreate that experience on my end. But apparently that is a blind spot that has been filled in. It has now been filled in. So hopefully we'll never have to deal with that again. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling up despite everything that's going on in the world. And so I hope that you are feeling the same. I hope that if you were feeling bad last week with me, you are now where I am and you're feeling better. And if you're not feeling better, I am right there with you anyway. I am rooting for you. I want you to work through those feelings so that so that you can move through them and come out the other side is what I hope for you. That's what I hope for you, fair listeners. Let's talk about the best little whorehouse in Texas. We have a lot of show facts to get through. Show me the show facts, Jonathan, if you please. Okay, I will. The best Little Whorehouse in Texas was a 1979 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on June 19, 1978 at the 46th Street Theater and ran for 1,584 performances. The show closed on March 27, 1982, only to reopen at the Eugene O'Neill Theater just two months later. This return engagement lasted for an additional 63 performances, but is technically considered a revival of the show as opposed to an extension of the original run. The length of that original run marks our subject as the 51st longest running show in Broadway history. It currently sits between Ain't Misbehavin' at number 50, 1,604 performances, and Spamalot at number 52, 1,575 performances. We know those shows. We've talked about those shows. The Book of Texas was written by Larry L. King and Peter Masterson. The show is based on King's 1974 article for Playboy magazine, which detailed the exploits at the Chicken Ranch brothel in LaGrange, Texas. The Chicken Ranch opened in 1905 and closed in 1973, earned its name by instituting a poultry standard during the Great Depression, which required a live chicken for services rendered, and raked in more than $500,000 a year throughout the 1960s. The Chicken Ranch also inspired the ZZ Top song LaGrange, which is featured on the group's 1973 album, Trace Hombres. Hombres. 
Mavericks of Texas were written by Carol Hall. After listening to the OBC album for this week's subject, I was convinced Carol Hall had a background in music that extended beyond musical theater, and I was right. She recorded two solo albums, If I Be Your Lady in 1970 and Beads and Feathers in 1972, as well as a retrospective album entitled Hallways, The Songs of Carol Hall in 2009. She frequently wrote for children's programming, including three songs for the 1972 album Free to Be You and Me, and at least seven songs for Sesame Street. She also wrote for jazz pianist Bill Evans, Tony Bennett, and Barbara Streisand. Let's listen to a bit of Jenny Rebecca, her contribution to the 1965 Streisand album My Name is Barbara. Jenny Rebecca Lucky girl you are For you have swings to be swung on Oh, lovely. The director of Texas, we have two directors actually, Peter Masterson and Tommy Toon. The musical director, Robert Billig. Choreographer, Tommy Toon. Scenic design, Marjorie Kellogg. Lighting design, Dennis Pariki. Sound design, no sound design. Once again, N.A. on the sound design. The costume design was by Anne Roth, and the original Broadway cast included Henderson Forsyth, Carlin Glenn, Dolores Hall, Clinton Allman, Pamela Blair, Don Crabtree, Joan Ellis, Jay Frank Lucas, Louise Quick Bowen, Tom Cashin, and Becky Gelke. Now, it should be noted that Carlin Glenn, Dolores Hall, Clinton Allman, J. Frank Lucas, Louise Quick Bowen, Tom Cashin, and Becky Gelke returned to reprise their roles when Texas reopened at the O'Neill in May of 1982. Though, it should be noted that Louise's surname had changed from Quick Bowen to Quick. By that time, we may be getting too granular at this point. Let's talk about Tony Nods. Okay, Tony Nods. The show won a Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. That went to Henderson Forsyth. And it also won Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Carlin Glenn. It was additionally nominated for Best Musical, of course. Best Book of a Musical, Larry L. King and Peter Masterson. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Joan Ellis. Best Choreography, Tommy Toon. And Best Direction of a Musical, Peter Masterson and Tommy Toon. So, seven nominations in total, two awards at the end of the day. Last week, I relied on Jamaicans.com for our plot synopsis. We're in the plot synopsis section of this week's episode. This week, I'm turning to GuideToMusicalTheater.com. As once again, I find Wikipedia has come up short. What's going on, Wikipedia? What happened to the days when I had to comb through your meticulous, your meticulous summaries for shows like Les Miserables and Spamalot? Spamalot! Come on, snap to it already. The setting for this week's subject is the fictional town of Gilbert, Texas, where Miss Mona Stangley has operated the chicken ranch brothel for many a profitable year. As the curtain rises, Miss Mona is introduced to Shy and Amber, a pair of down-on-their-luck gals who are looking to earn some money and eventually make a fresh start. Miss Mona is all too happy to bring them into the fold, and in doing so, we learn how the chicken ranch functions as a business and a community. Shy and Amber's appearance is actually fortuitous for Miss Mona. The big football game between the Aggies and the Longhorns is just around the corner, and tradition calls for the losing team to pay for a night at the chicken ranch. In other words, the brothel is about to be overrun with horny college boys, and Miss Mona will need all hands on deck if she's to leave them smiling and satisfied. That said, there's no reason for anyone to worry. The chicken ranch has been chugging along for over 50 years, and everyone in Gilbert adores Miss Mona. Hell, she even has Sheriff Ed Earl Dodd on her side. What could 
possibly go wrong? Enter Melvin P. Thorpe, uh-oh, dun-dun-dun, a puritanical journalist who uses his platform to expose the seedy underbelly of American society. Melvin is determined to produce a story that will shut the ranch down for good, but his first visit results in a confrontation with Sheriff Dodd. Nonplussed, Melvin returns to the ranch with a camera crew and successfully manages to raid the place, capturing Miss Mona and her ladies on film for all to see. This proves to be a major problem, of course, because despite Miss Mona's sterling reputation, the state of Texas has ironclad laws against prostitution. As such, the chicken ranch is forced to close, and the ladies are left with no choice but to hit the road. Mona and Sheriff Dodd share a tender moment as they lock the doors to the ranch one last time. The end! I sort of assumed the plot would invoke a deus ex machina to ensure a happy ending for all, but this is obviously not true. A conservative asshole wins the day and a bunch of women lose their jobs. Uh, deal with it! For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1978 original Broadway cast album of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and I also watched the 1979 Tony Awards performance of The Aggie Song. This song is censored so dramatically by the broadcast, you have to wonder why it was selected in the first place of all the songs you could have picked. It's not even that filthy, but if you know that it's going to be censored for broadcast television, Television, just don't pick it, is my point. The introductory speech that was written for Henry Fonda, he introduces the cast to the audience, that speech refers to Playboy magazine as a national magazine. Oh, uh, uh, the show is based on an article that was written for a national magazine. We can't even say Playboy on television? For crying out loud, this is 1979. I know that it was a different time, but you'd think we could at least reference the existence of Playboy magazine. I'll say this much. If you do not recreate the bench choreography featured in this clip, you are a buffoon. Hello, attention choreographers and directors of Texas Productions. Do not let yourself be a buffoon, okay? And I will also say this regarding the Tony Awards performance. Beefy, beefy, hairy musical theater actors can get it. A bunch of cutie pies on display here. I'm not even normally that into jock types, but I think it's the fact that it's a bunch of musical theater men, you know, putting on the guise of this, you know, jock alpha sensibility. So <laughs> I like the trick they're trying to pull. I appreciate it. I, I just assume they're all Nelly Bottoms in the bedroom when the lights are off under the sheets. And finally, I watched the 1982 film adaptation of this show, which was directed by Colin Higgins and stars none other than Dolly Parton, Burt Reynolds, and Dom DeLuise. Oh, this was a delight. I had never seen the movie before. This was a brand new show for me in general. I had never sat down with any of this material leading up to this week. And I assumed that the movie was not going to be all that good for some reason. Dolly Parton's film career is a little all over the place. I mean, of course she has 9 to 5, but then she has movies like Rhinestone with Stallone, you know? You never know what you're going to get with a Dolly Parton rom-com. But the movie is so good, Bert and Donna have chemistry. Chemistry? Yeah, chemistry. They're book scenes, for the lack of a better term. I mean, we're talking about a movie here, not a stage show, of course. But their scenes are so intimate and warm, and they have this really nice, funny repartee together. It's just, it's a wonderful on-screen pairing. And I had absolutely no idea that the final number in the movie is I Will Always Love You, Dolly Parton's original version of I Will Always Love You. Excuse me? Where have I been? <laughs> Where have I been? It's not a matter of, oh, where has this movie been all my life? It really is a question of, where was I this whole time? <laughs> it was the nicest little whorehouse you ever saw. It lay about a mile down this old dirt road, and if you just happened to stumble on it, you couldn't help but notice that the barns were painted, the fences were up, and you might think to yourself, why, folks that live there might just do to run the river with. Oh, the little house lay in green Texas glade Where the trees were as cool and as fresh lemonade Soft summer wind 
had a trace of perfume and a fan was turning in every room 20 fans returning they were turning 20 fans returning in every room fevers were a burning they were burning and they had to have a way to cool down since the 1890s this had been one of the better pleasure palaces in all texas in fact, they say some of our Landville County boys celebrated here before going off to fight with Teddy Roosevelt at San Juan Hill. It was during the Hoover Depression that Miss Wola Jean come along. She put in a set of rules that made the place sort of special. And she liked her ladies, as she called them, to treat a customer real nice. It had nice watermelons all covered with vines and uh, Vegetable garden, a few slender pines, white painted fence with the roses in bloom, and a fan was turning in every room. Twenty fans were turning. She put a jukebox in the parlor to sort of help break the ice. A guest could ask a girl to dance, or if he held back a little, why she'd ask him, and pretty soon they'd get a little business on. Three dollars worth. Imagine your resident musical man sitting in a confession booth at the top of this week's score deconstruction. Okay, can you picture it? I'm surrounded by cheap wood paneling, and I can just make you out. Oh, I could just make you out through the tiny mesh portal. Get through the sentence, Jonathan. Bless me, listener, for I have sinned. I thought the best little whorehouse in Texas was going to be a complete dud. It's true. I always assumed it was nothing more than a stupid cornball comedy for stupid corn-fed rednecks. The sort of musical a classy classy homosexual like myself would never come to appreciate. I'm a classy homosexual. I sit on small olives to stimulate my prostate, but they're, they're expensive olives. I should not have been so quick to judge. I should not have been as such. Okay, fair listener? I'm not only a fan of this show now, but an enthusiastic champion of its many virtues. I have seen the light. What I most adore about Texas is its approach to sex and sex work. This is a supremely horny show filled with men who are practically frothing out of the mouth to bust the proverbial nut. But their enthusiasm for sex always feels sweet, never sleazy. This ain't Porky's The Musical. The men of Gilbert adore Miss Mona and the women who work for her, and the only people who think to degrade them are heartless jackasses like Melvin Thorpe. Sex work is portrayed as practical, profitable, and pleasurable for all involved, and I am beyond impressed by that stance. This show premiered on Broadway in 1978. We still can't have a national, rational conversation about legalizing sex work in 2020. Hall, King, and Masterson waste no time in establishing their sex-positive tone. 20 Fans is a warm peach pie of an opening that effectively dissolved any reservations I had about this show. I felt as if I were a genuine country fella sitting in an inner tube, puttering downriver to the easy strains of Carol Hall's music and lyrics. And I was mighty impressed by how the number manages to squeeze in a history lecture on the chicken ranch without breaking a sweat. It calls to mind Roger Miller's opening narration from Disney's Robin Hood. Slow and easy, supremely comforting. I'm sorry, but can I keep praising the sexual politics of this musical? I just can't get over how wrong I was when it came to that angle. 20 fans could lead you to believe Texas is more sketch-based and less emotionally mature than it actually is. Make no mistake, this is more Steel Magnolias than it is Hee Haw. The women are consistently placed front and center, and time is always being made to explore their inner lives. This is what you get when you have a woman writing for women, and more specifically, women who are sex workers. Do we recall how Schoenberg and Bublil portrayed sex workers in Miss Saigon as grouchy, broken souls before abandoning them 20 minutes into the first act? Miss Saigon pities and hates 
women, and especially women who act as sex workers. Texas knows there are stories to be told about sex workers that aren't steeped in tragedy and tears and death, and I couldn't be happier that it chose to embrace the potential of those stories. It's just a little bit of piss and country place. Nothing much to see. No drinking allowed. We get a nice white crowd. Plain as it can be. It's just a pillow spot and old time country place. Nothing too high tone. Just lots of goodwill and maybe one small thrill. But nothing dirty going on. Keep your language clean, girl. Keep your bedroom neat. Don't hang around the town cafe or say hi on the street. put something out there, I believe I would have made an excellent addition to Miss Mona's staff, okay? The first gay man at the best little whorehouse in Texas, why not? Are we saying there aren't gay men in Gilbert? Is that what you're saying, listener? Are we saying none of the guys on the college football teams are gay or bisexual? Stuff and nonsense. There will always be men in Texas who need their assholes worshipped, and I'm just the man for the job. I'd take all comers. And you'd believe, you'd better believe, I'd follow all of Miss Mona's rules. Thank you very much. I would never snitch on someone for using the telephone too much or getting a tattoo, but I, I would follow the rules. It's Miss Mona's house, and I must abide. Speaking of the rules, there's a moment in the film where one of the ladies is shown smoking cocaine out of a pipe with her customer, and I have to assume that is against the rules. No smoking cocaine in Miss Mona's house. Drugs are bad. Oh, I suppose I should give my verdict on this here number, which is known as a little old bitty pissant country place. My verdict, it's a downright hootenanny. I often find myself sighing in the face of repetition in musical theater, as a lot of musical theater songs aren't entertaining enough to warrant extra laps. But Pissant never threatens to wear out its welcome. Keep singing about those rules, ladies. I'm taking notes. Wait, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. You're not allowed to be married? Okay, well, shit. I'm out. I'm out, okay? Sorry, Miss Mona. Sorry, ladies. Your loss. Girl, get a hold now. Straighten up. Look alive, girl, you're a woman, you'll survive. Remember one good thing when you are moving on is wondering what you'll find. And one good thing about a past that's gone is leaving it behind. Girl, you're a Let's get serious. This score by Carol Hall is fantastic. So many of the tracks 
on the OBC album could and have stood on their own as stellar country singles. And one such tune is Girl, You're a Woman. I straight up did not expect this emotional turn from Texas. I thought I was in for a marathon of raunchy Catskills humor. That much is obvious at this point. And when I realized there was an enormous heart beating at the center of this show, I melted like a marshmallow over a bonfire. I mean, my God, the mournful string intro alone was enough to do the job. But then you have Carlin Glenn earning her Tony Award like it's a walk in the park. No offense to Dolly Parton, as she pairs well with the role of Miss Mona, but her performance isn't nearly as layered as that of Carlin Glenn. With Glenn, half the fun is not knowing how to predict the subtle effects of her phrasing. Her version of Mona is simultaneously warm, stern, maternal, intimidating, and fiercely protective, and I wanted nothing more than to sit at her feet and absorb her no-nonsense wisdom. I can totally see myself returning to this track in times of confusion. We all need a Miss Mona in our ear at one time or another. And then it's 24 hours of loving, 24 hours of fun, 24 hours in heaven, just fly, oh yeah. And then it's 24 hours of loving, oh how those minutes do run, 24 hours how quickly they go by. Cause there's an hour of fingertips, there's an hour of sweet, sweet lips, there's an hour of a its laudatory relationship to sex and sex work, Texas does stumble when it comes to its relationship with black women. The character of Jewel, who serves as the maid to Miss Mona and her staff, is specifically written to be played by a black woman. Everyone in the show loves Jewel, to be clear. She is never viewed as anything less than equal to those around her. Regardless, it's hard to shake a distinct Gone with the Wind vibe when Jewel shows up to crack a joke or sing 24 Hours of Lovin', which has clearly been infused with a more funky, urban sensibility. Once again, Broadway is asking a big black lady to stop the show, and Dolores Hall is stopping the show all right. She's talented as hell, but that maid shit has got to go. Throw it away. Why can't Jewel be Mona's business partner? Why does she have to be the fucking maid? No more maids, okay? We should have known better in 1978, and we should have definitely learned a lesson by the time Teresa Merritt appeared in the film four years later. No more maids. End up like a playboy queen I wanted to I wanted to But I never could Went to a county fair Saw me a show That had a girl up there She wore a diamond Stuck in her bed She danced and But I never could She seems 
Susan Mansier should have received a Tony nomination for her performance as Dotsy May. The character's signature song is a fantastic opportunity for any actor, but the way in which Mansier walks a line between heartbreaking and soul-stirring should be studied carefully. It's a total triumph. Every time, every single time she delivered the line I wanted to, I nearly broke down and cried. And by the end of the number, when she says Dotsy's not as simple as she seems, I was practically standing in the aisle. Yes, go, Dotsy May. Live your truth for Jesus, God's sake. I'll say it again. This is what you get when women write for women. Remember Where Did the Rock Go from School of Rock? Remember playing Nancy from Groundhog Day just a couple of weeks ago? That's what you get when mediocre white men write for women. One-note pity parties where a woman's happiness is ultimately predicated on the acceptance or growth of men. Don't See May as a song is not a pity party, it's a quiet reckoning. It moves through several sets of feelings all at once, and I find it to be completely captivating. I only wish Carol Hall had thought to write material for Jewel that was this revealing. What's going on with Jewel? I and others would love to know. song is maybe the most homoerotic number about heterosexuality to come out of the musical theater canon, and that's saying something. Step aside, there is nothing like a dame, there's a new sheriff in town, and he's thirsting for a jerkin. What is wrong with me this week? The song is especially coded as queer in the film adaptation. Between the lingering shots of bright, bare asses and a featured vocalist who seemingly applied his own smoky eyeshadow, it's basically a softcore Times Square skin flick. Am I exaggerating? Maybe. If I were to stage the Aggie song, would I ever allow the men to put on shirts? No! They would never wear shirts! Jeans, yes. Boots, yes. We have to do the line dancing after all. But shirts? Nope. Never! Caught a bus in Amarillo It was going to San Antonio Had a brand new cardboard suitcase And a window seat alone And I thought that I was something and I dreamed I'd travel far Maybe be a restaurant hostess Maybe be a movie star And the bus from Amarillo Raced a train along the track But I never looked behind me Cause I wasn't coming back I had a one-way ticket To know for me. How did Carol Hall not transition into writing for country artists after the success of this show? The bus from Amarillo is yet another radio-ready smash, and the fact that it serves as the Act 1 finale just tickles me. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'll reiterate how Texas could have easily been a moronic or mean-spirited farce populated with goofball ciphers. But the women at the heart of this piece are shining like stars and it's stupendous. The only true cipher in this story is Melvin Thorpe, but I don't need to know more about him. He can remain two-dimensional because people like him are never difficult to understand. He's a shallow-minded piece of shit. 
But to bring it back to the bus from Amarillo, how, how, how can you not enjoy listening to Mona as she looks back on her life? Bittersweet reflections with a southern comfort twang? Count me in, sister. Tell me about your dreams and your regrets. Friends, I want to thank you for that warm and sincere Christian welcome. Gentlemen, you may ask your questions now. What about the chicken ranch, Governor? Fellow Texans, I'm proudly standing here to humbly say, I assure you, and I mean it. Now who says I don't speak out as plain as day? And fellow Texans, I'm for progress and the flag. Long may it fly. I'm a poor boy, come to greatness. So it follows that I cannot tell a lie. What the hell did he say? Where's he don't, he don't, he don't. Little Lancey died. Jay Garner's performance as the governor is so gleefully hammy that I want to pop an apple into his mouth and serve him for Sunday dinner. Opening the second act of a musical comedy is no easy feat. Your audience just spent 15 minutes drifting away from the world and the tone you worked so hard to establish. And if you can't get them back on board in these first few minutes, these first few moments, you could very well lose them permanently. That's why you need someone like Jay Garner. This guy seems hell-bent on lighting a firecracker under our collective ass, and I appreciate his commitment. The governor would appear to be a one-scene-and-you're-out kind of character, along the lines of a King Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar, so I don't blame him for wanting to go balls out. It's the way he sings, ooh... The ooh, I love to dance, the little sad step, that that part gets me. How is he producing that ridiculous rattlesnake vibrato on ooh? Ooh, I can't do it. What a trick. Well, she's a good old girl. We've been some long, long Miles together and thank the Lord She never was a clinging kind But she's a good old girl We had some fine big laughs together Never talked, no foolish talk, had no ties and held no rules. Hail that good old girl and me, we ain't, we ain't damn fools, you know. We never talked too much.
Sheriff Dodd may only have one song in Texas, but it's a low-key doozy, one that manages to expose the prickly lawman as a sentimental softy. Good old girl is a lot like I've grown accustomed to her face from my fair lady, come to think of it. Both are delivered by men who have a lot of trouble admitting or articulating their affections for the women in their lives. Henry Higgins is largely perplexed by his own emotions, whereas Sheriff Dodd is nearly overwhelmed by them. He is moments away from turning into a blubbering pile of jelly. This is a wonderfully endearing performance from Henderson Forsyth, one that calls to mind my dear old dad. Here's to men who have emotions and are embarrassed by them. God knows a lot of them are trying their best. certain I first heard Hard Candy Christmas, my favorite song from Texas, by the way, when I was putting together a Christmas mix CD for our household. That opening phrase, hey, maybe I'll dye my hair, oh man, that threw me for a loop when I heard Dolly Parton deliver it, and threw me for a loop all over again while listening to the OBC album. This show is packed with semi-mournful, semi-hopeful elegies, each one of them a hit in their own right, but Hard Candy Christmas? That is an all-timer right there, folks, and this cast is solidifying its reputation with each passing note. I care about these women so much. I want all of them to find happiness because they're a family and they look out for each other and that loyalty should be rewarded. Oh, in case you were wondering, the Dolly Parton song included as part of our Christmas mix is her cover of Wonderful Christmas Time, which she performs alongside Chicago. And by performs, I mean she probably... <laughs> she probably knocked out her very limited contribution in 10 minutes or less in a location that was completely separate from that of the Chicago band members. There is no way, no way she interacted with the boys of Chicago face-to-face. -face. Long story short, I think I should have gone with Hard Candy Christmas, right? Right. That is all we have for you in regards to our deconstruction of the Texas score. And so we are now going to hear from our fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. me, King Triton, from The Little Mermaid, the stage production of The Little Mermaid, to be precise. Oh, I'm in a bit of a pickle. I have to go through all of my daughter's old bullcrap. Oh, now that my daughter's a human, she's no longer living in the ocean, and so I have to go through all of her bobbles and her widgie-magoobers, and her hobbit-a-doops. Oh, man, this is gonna take all day. 
Hey, what's this? Some sort of metallic box that turns bread into crispy bread? I'll call that the Crisco go 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 Oh, what's this over here? A big bag filled with long sticks and small white balls? Oh, that makes me think of my own balls. And by that I mean the grand dances that I hold for all of my daughters. Oh, oh, it's a white dress code. Everybody wear white seashells. Oh, and what's this over here? A glass filled with some sort of brown liquid? Oh, seems suspicious to me. It better not be liquor. My daughter is only 16 years old. Let me take a sip. Sip, sip, sip. Wowie, wowie, wowie! It's that five, six, seven, eight coffee Sebastian's always not shutting the fuck up about. I always tell him to shut the fuck up about it, but now I'm gonna tell him to never shut the fuck up about it because this is the most delicious coffee I've ever had. And I've been living in the ocean for thousands of years. I've had every coffee variety under the blue moon, but this is oh. This is all. Oh, this is sending me to the blue moon. Oh, I want to be where the coffee is, where they make it, and where they bag it. I'd pay upwards of 67 conch shells for a bag of this coffee. Sebastian, get out there and get me some of that coffee. I don't care if the French chef is going to murder you. Steal it from under his gigantic nose. This is King Triton saying 5678 coffee. Oh, I can count on it. And you can count on me to clear out this room of fucking bullshit. Oh, that's the head of the statue I blew up during my angry, my angry moment. Oh, I'm so ashamed. Ariel, please forgive me. I want to be where the coffee is. Final thoughts regarding the best little whorehouse in Texas. Now, I have a small, a short note here regarding what I want to talk about here in the final thoughts section. I'm, I'm allowing myself to sort of be free of notes here. I'm going to be speaking off the cuff, and I just want to, I want to throw something out there. Okay, can I throw something out there? I was sort of surprised and thrown for a damn loop because I, I really do want to compare the ending of this show, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, to the ending of another show, and that's Fiddler on the Roof. I actually think there are more than a couple of parallels that can be drawn between these two endings. Now, of course, I don't mean to say that this is a one-to-one A equals B scenario, okay? Of course, the circumstances that these characters are dealing with in their respective shows are quite different. The stakes are quite different in each show. But consider this, okay? Both the characters of Texas and Fiddler are forced out of their respective communities, their homes, and at the end of each show, the members of those communities look back on this world that they have been inhabiting for so long, and they come to the same conclusion. I didn't talk about the finale track for the Texas OBC album, but the last lyric you hear is a reiteration of the phrase, that phrase, oh, it's just a little old bitty pissant country place. Mona says that one last time as she reflects on her time, and she's being a little self-deprecating, you know, she's, she's dinging this world of hers a bit, and I think that is to, it's, it's helping her process the fact that this chapter of her life is over. And yes, this place wasn't perfect, but it was theirs. And they were safe there, and they built something that was very special to everyone involved. And that's exactly what happens in Fiddler on the Roof. Everybody sings about their town, their village of Anatevka, and they're they're a little self-deprecating about it. They realize that it's not this, you know, bustling metropolis. It was never this beautiful utopia, but it was theirs. And they worked for every piece of it. They built it from the ground up. And now those characters are being forced out of their homes by people who think they have they have this 
moral, I don't know what the word I'm trying to find is, these people who think they are above them, of course, these people who think that they are more moral and are able to dictate how people should run their lives. And at the end of both shows, all of the characters are scattered to the winds, and they may never see each other again, and they're going to have to completely uproot their lives and start over somewhere else. I know, <laughs> I know maybe at first this sounded crazy, but hopefully by sort of spinning my wheels a bit, I was able to bring you around to where I am. I was just, I was completely surprised by the similarities I picked up on here, and maybe I'm just trying to make it sound as if I'm smart. <laughs> Don't I sound smart, listener? Please tell me I'm smart. Oh, I'm doing a good impression of King Triton from The Little Mermaid. Now, in 1979, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was a show we've talked about in the past. It was none other than Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, and the additional nominees from that season were Ballroom and They're Playing Our Song. Should Texas have won the Tony Award for Best Musical over Sweeney Todd? No, but I do believe it is a strong strong, strong second place finisher. That's what I have to say about that. Now let us rank Texas against all of the other musicals we have talked about here on the podcast. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod. Go to our likes section. Click on the first tweet that you see there. The first tweet in our likes section will take you to a Google sheet. The second tab of that sheet will give you everything that you need to know in regards to how we have ranked all of these shows against each other. Now, Texas, I'm going to give you the number 17 slot in between Passing Strange at number 16 and The Most Happy Fella at number 18. I have another announcement regarding this ranking of ours. I have changed the position of Dear Evan Hansen once again. It has now gone up. It went way down, and now it's gone up a bit. It is now at number 43 between The Lion King at 42 and Once at number 44. I suspect that that show will keep bouncing around like a ping pong ball. That is my that is my X Factor show, I'll tell you that right now. And you heard me talk about this last week, so I'm not going to blather on about it anymore. Let's move on to the show-related ephemera, shall we? We're going to start this ephemera segment with Change in Me, a song from the 1994 sequel musical, The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public. The show had the exact same writing team, directors, and choreographer, and ran on Broadway for a whopping 16 performances. 16. Womp, womp. Let's get a bit of that song, shall we? What living teaches is that everything is beaches and cream, like a dream coming true if you try it. A piece of cake and it's all there for just the taking and free. It's there for you and me. There ain't any more blues in here. Something better for choosing here. Something unlucky. A feeling that's creeping in. Every day I get more of it deepening. I'm completely deranged. It's been a real wonderful. Fun fact, I sang this song in college. It's probably, it's easily the only song I remember from this cast recording, and by that logic, I would say that it's probably the best. And I sang this song in college as prep for an audition, and a professor of mine described my performance as, quote, angry and, quote, red-faced. He wasn't wrong. I'm sure it was hard to watch. There were some tough moments for me during my college theater education, I tell you what. And I have another song for you as we sit comfortably in this ephemera segment. That song is True Blue Miracle. This is Carol Hall's Grammy award-winning song from the 1978 TV special Christmas Eve on Sesame Street.
you love a Christmas song? Don't you love a Sesame Street Christmas song? To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Start the Presses! Everyone ready? Then away we go! Okay, so we have landed in the year 1982. This is a nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and it ran on Broadway for 573 performances. It is Pump Boys and Dinettes. All right. <laughs> that is the biggest all right reaction I, I may ever have on this entire show. Okay, so Pump Boys and Dinettes. Fine, all right. That's the subject for next week's episode. Look, I have to I have to I have to follow the dictation of the musical carousel, okay? I have to do its bidding, all right? Okay? Fine. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. We just made our September donation on the first of this month, so thank you again for donating. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. Let's start with what you get as a one dollar a month donor, okay? You get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. You get a verbal shout out each and every week. Let's do those now. Let's start out by shouting out our latest $1 a month Patreon donor, and that is Jared. Thank you so much, Jared. And also Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Mark S, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you all so much. Ah, but we're not done. You also get bonus episodes. Every now and again, you'll get a bonus episode. And the ones that we have already released, these cover the 73 third annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage production Emma, a deconstruction of Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, and Hamilton via Disney+. Plus. You also get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, and M3, the movie musical man. This is a monthly series for which I watch trios, trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Coming September 30th, the latest episode of M3 The Movie Musical Man, which is known as the Tune Trilogy. Animated movie musicals, Gay Paris, Anastasia, Ugly Dolls. We're going to talk about all of them. Now, let's say you move up one tier to the $3 a month tier. What do you get then? Well, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get season one, ten episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and coming soon, you're going to get a one-off retrospective on the new Netflix Kenny Ortega show, Julie and the Phantoms. Ooh, boo-boo-boo-boo, the Phantoms. $5 a month will net you everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You choose. You also get season one, 12 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, season two, coming in October of this year. You also get access to our series of Broadway in Chicago reviews and Shout About It, Volume 1, a collection of 5678 ads and musical shoutouts from the first 25 episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus Season 1, 12 episodes of The Snub Club. That is a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, take a minute to write a five-star review. It means the world to me to see those reviews. I love seeing brand new reviews coming out of the machine. So come on, do it for you. Do it for you, baby. I'm your baby. Baby, goo 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 ga. You might be listening to the show through Spotify or Stitcher or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. If you are, thank you so much. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at any time at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. If you have questions, if you have takes, if you disagree with me, 
me, let me know. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny. Oh, I love you, Patty and Benny. Alex Green for our beautiful logo. Thank you, Alex, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, but you know what that sound means? I used to get scared by that doorbell, but now I, I'm not scared. I know what that doorbell means, yes. Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off and good night. <laughs>